0: God is not scared of your doubt. If God's not scared, then why are we? Have you ever been so certain about something only later to be proven wrong? See, as it turns out, Meg Ryan isn't Top Gun after all. So, so certain that my friends don't know what they're talking about because I know that Kelly McGillis stars in Top Gun. I'm 100% positive about it. And I have no problem challenging my friend's knowledge, but mine is 100% concrete. Until, of course, a bet is made. And once there's stakes, consequences, now I'm not so certain. Is it Meg Ryan? Could it have been Meg Ryan with Tom Cruise? Now I'm questioning reality. It seems like it's a little kink in our assurance armor. When we can visualize the possibility of consequences to being wrong, we then challenge things that we have comfortably lived content with. Assurances are questioned, our reality uprooted, doubt replaces certainty. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. When we walk around with the idea that we hold absolution, it causes us to become arrogant, unteachable, and content with remaining stagnant in maturity and growth. Thomas, Thomas is a walking example. See, his friends, the other disciples, have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, while Thomas is notably absent. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The day in question is Sunday, the day that Jesus resurrected. And the disciples are sequestered in fear, both literally and mentally. And Jesus' arrival brings them relief. It gives them the peace, not like the way the world gives it to them, but the way that Jesus gives it to them, and moves them beyond cowering. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas wants absolute definitive proof before he's going to consider the possibility. And it's good to question and challenge, he doesn't have a lot of respect for his friends but hey, it's okay to be unsure. But all of this is good to a point. Imagine that that was the last encounter with Jesus. The disciples, they would have continued in faith. And Thomas watches his friends be transformed from fearful to emboldened to share the gospel. Because one of the things that Jesus shared with them during that time was, I'm sending you as the Father has sent me. And so Thomas kind of remains at a standstill at that point. Holding on to that, I need this definitive proof. See, doubt is no longer fruitful when we can no longer move forward in anything. Do you ever think about how you move your muscles in your leg in order to walk? Do you ever think about how you move forward in any way? Or does it just come naturally to you? You ever thought about it and then suddenly you've forgotten how to walk? Like, wait, how do I work this thing again? At some point, we have to become content with faith being enough of an answer. See, faith is not limited to religion, it's like many some people would like to think. Faith is a daily exercise in functioning in life. We assume and trust without question regularly on many different things on all sorts of different levels because we live in a world uncontrolled by us with unimaginable variables. There are too many questions, thoughts, experiences, and events in life that can cause us to doubt our understanding of things. How does this work? Why is it done this way? Why did that happen? The resurrection is a great example that surely caused many people to begin to question their understanding and doubt what they believed before. So faith is a little more of a permanent staple in our life than many would lead on. And it is why God calls us to engage in faith with Him. Because it's part of everyday life. So what about the times when our faith, though, is questioned because of things we can't explain? What about historical or philosophical answers that we just don't have, that someone brings up? Or what about devastating outcomes in life that cause us to ask why? Why, Lord? Why would you allow that to happen? No one knew that more than Job, who wrestled with those types of questions. There's a passage where he lodges a complaint with God. He questions God. He questions his life, whether he can keep on living or just even moving forward. And I don't recommend his friends, by the way, but his friends, clearly a little misguided, but they do get a few nuggets right while they're saying all the wrong things, by the way, to a grieving man. So don't say most of what his friends say, but here they get this part right on. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? So exploring doubt today, I'm not promising absolute certainty on anything because I don't think we can get there. See, we are finite beings relying on finite methods to understand the vastness of the creation we find ourselves in. Discovery is like remodeling a house. You, you rip one thing out and only discover three new things to deal with underneath. What I am suggesting is that doubt doesn't have to be as scary as it sounds. In fact, we should be familiar with a healthy dose of doubt. Thomas, he gets kind of a bad rap. We call him Doubting Thomas, but why? Because he struggled with the resurrection? You know, Peter had just as much to struggle with trusting Jesus, yet alone trusting to accept the crucifixion. In fact, Peter rebuked Jesus. We don't call him Doubting Peter. But the Bible never refers to Thomas as doubting Thomas. We did that. And it speaks volumes to our avoidance of doubt when we discredit a man because he vocalized his honesty. Thomas, although a little theatrical, I mean, if you go back to that verse and really read it, it says he wants to put his hand into the side of Jesus. Inside. That is crazy. But Thomas has always been one to vocalize his commitment and faith in Jesus in the past, while always being a little pessimistic. See, when Lazarus had died, and Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem, and at this point there was so much hostility towards Jesus, Thomas is just sure that it'll lead to Jesus' death, but hey, let's die with him. We may as well go out in a blaze of glory right by Jesus. So it's not a surprise that Thomas is the one in need of a grander gesture. But something happened between Jesus going to Lazarus and where Thomas is now. And I think it's Jesus' death on the cross that really just kind of shook him up. And just because he predicted it doesn't mean that he actually believed it would ever happen. You might notice that Thomas didn't die that day. He didn't fight to the death. He didn't die by Jesus' side. And Thomas seems to have always been the one who would have benefited from the physical presence of Jesus. See, when Jesus is comforting the disciples and sharing with them the promise of what his death and resurrection brings us, uh, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, but believe also in me, says Jesus. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I would go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. i not confusing for you. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says this famous line that we've all heard, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Note Thomas's question here is seeking an answer that is both knowledge and of the physical nature. He wants to know physically how to get there. Jesus, where are you going? I want to go with you. Where is it? Where will this all lead? Where are we going to be dwelling with God? And Jesus actually, he points to himself as being both the destination and the path to get there. So to lose the physical presence of Jesus, the way, I'm sure can cause one to question and doubt what to do next. He's probably saying to the disciples, look, don't don't get my hopes up. Look, I don't want to go down that road again. I don't want to have to deal with that. If they killed him once, they'll probably kill him again. I want certainties. If he is alive, I want certainties. Thomas gives an ultimatum. His belief requires physical evidence. Actually, no, I'll take that back. It requires physical interaction. Put that hand in the side of that man. That is straight up gross. I don't know why he even wants it. He says this or he'll continue to doubt. I'll just, I, it's like a child saying, if does it does not my way, it's the highway. Look, without dismissing the struggle you might be going through or went through with doubt, I want to offer you a different way to look at it. Doubt is merely a phase of maturing. Questions, they're just part of a growing and maturing relationship. I, I put it like this, doubt is like chewing on meat, like a nice big piece of steak. You have to chew on it. You can't swallow it in one bite. It's tough. It takes time. You have to spend time with it. And it's harder to deal with than milk because milk is for babies. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those that have their powers to have discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God." We don't need to keep reapplying the same things that we've come to believe. We don't always have to throw those into question every time there's a new thing that's a little bit harder to understand. The unknown territory, it scares us. And the familiar, it's comforting. But at some point, our faith struggles when our idea of God finds itself too small for the reality that we are confronted with. It requires maturity, not in answers, but in understanding how God's wisdom works. You know, um, my favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, uh, there's this awesome scene. It's not in the movie. I don't know why they didn't include it, but it's when Lucy discovers Aslan again for the first time. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. And all I can ever picture at this point is Liam Nielsen's voice, so just imagine it with me when he says, that is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Not that Aslan is bigger, but that she will fine, she will discover that he is bigger. See, God is not changing. He has never changed, but our understanding of him has. And at that time period when there's the in-between between the thing that we were in and the thing that we're discovering, this is where we're wrestling with, where we're chewing on the tougher meat. We're being stretched in a way that we're not yet familiar with. That's growth, that's maturity. And it can also be painful, difficult, and challenging to be stretched. And those can be moments of questions, trials, conflict, stress, and heartache. We tend to look at doubt as a negative thing in our life and harmful, as if like it's just a sinful thing to have any of that in my life. But there's a difference between wrestling with doubt, which means that you're active in it, that you're actively pursuing it, and a passive doubt. One where you're just a pursuit of the quick fixes. It's a quick google search, now I know the answer, and I don't have to trouble myself with that deep theological question. But see, the Bible tells us to seek to mature in the full measure of Christ, to seek to understand by His understanding, not by my own. It's a doubt that still treats God with reverence. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. There's this popular thing going on right now called deconstruction. It's this process of looking for things to disprove the things that you already believe. I'm sure people start off with it thinking it's about wiping the slate clean so that you can go on to discover what you do believe, but the problem is, is it's a reward system for always removing beliefs, never actually rewarding you for discovering truths. And everything that you search for, if it can disprove what you already believe, it's immediately accepted as true, rather than holding them up to what you already believe because your pursuit is about disproving, not discovering. And if we're already down that road, we've already stopped believing, and we're just looking for confirmation now in our doubt. Healthy doubt Is the process of trying to understand, no better yet trying to comprehend. See answers aren't the end goal, trust is. And if we can be thrown around into questioning everything the moment a new argument comes along, we'll just end up trusting nothing in the end. But Rick, what if I'm afraid that my doubt will lead to deconstruction of my faith? I, I want I want to share this thing with you. It, you're probably going to be thrown off by me saying it, but let me just say, God is not scared of your doubt. If God's not scared, then why are we? Our approach of how we handle this looks very differently when we approach it as us and God together. Notice Thomas's ultimatum. Unless this happens, I will never believe. He uses the word never. Ask yourself this. What Thomas demands... Will it really satisfy him? I mean, once time's passed, he'll probably need to go and touch Jesus' wounds again. It probably won't ever satisfy him because he needs something in the moment to satisfy a temporary confusion, frustration, conflict, difficult thing that he's going through in that moment. And when things are fine, he'll be okay. But when things get tough again, he'll need that physical interaction again because he's not looking back at all. But guess what? Jesus gives it to him anyways. See, eight days later, pause, I absolutely love this by the way, that Jesus is giving Thomas time to sit in his doubt. You wanna know what doubt feels like? I want you to fully understand it before this happens. So when his disciples are inside again, same scenario, only this time Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus offers the exact experience that Thomas had missed out on before. But this time, it's personalized for Thomas. And Jesus gives him the attention needed in the relationship. Go ahead, put your finger here. Put your hand in here. Not put your hand on here, Jesus literally says, you want to put your hand inside of me? Go right ahead. But don't disbelieve. Believe. And what does Thomas do? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas has never had a problem calling Jesus my Lord. But this, this is the first time that he says, my Lord and my God. He declares that Jesus is God Almighty. His faith expands and obtains an even deeper understanding of God. It doesn't stay where he last left it. Oh, give me what I need so I can get back to where I was. No doubt moves him forward. And Jesus, he understands now that Jesus is the manifestation of God in the flesh what does Thomas need? He doesn't need to touch Jesus. No, Jesus, I trust you. And he experiences the personal expression of God towards him. He wrestled with his doubt and concludes in growth in wisdom and understanding. Enough from his own determined needs to being met. He thought he knew what he needed in order to believe, but by engaging the difficulty, he was given what he really needed. Jesus' line after this sometimes gets labeled as a scolding for Thomas. That's fair, that he needed to see Jesus in order to believe. But the other disciples didn't recognize Jesus until they saw his wounds also. But the author of John is purposeful in including Jesus' word here because I think they're meant for us. Jesus said to him, "'Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed.'" Sometimes I think it would be better for my faith if I could just see Jesus and experience him by my side in the flesh. But I think God would have known what would be better for me, what my faith actually needs. See, we're not deprived of a better faith. We're blessed with our ability to trust him without the need to see. I wonder if because the disciples had already experienced God in the flesh, that their faith would actually require this kind of confirmation in order to move forward, that they would need to see Jesus resurrect from the dead. Either way, Jesus knew that their faith needed this experience, and it was to our benefit that they did. For now we have their testimony of witnessing Jesus triumphantly overcoming death. Here's my final thought on doubt. Looking at all the times when Jesus calls out the disciples throughout scripture on doubting, uh, listen to them, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why are you afraid? Where's your faith? Where is your belief? While Jesus is rebuking in those moments, we're missing that Jesus is also offering them the key to their struggle. He's inviting us to process doubt with him. It's not a rhetorical question. He's guiding us to examine ourselves and think back to what caused the difficulty in our understanding. Okay, there was a misplaced uh, moment of trust, but let's go back and figure out what happened. See, doubt feels isolating because it's a reaction of misplaced trust in the relationship. We don't feel that we can go back to the relationship for clarification or affirmation because it's the relationship itself that's being questioned although we may not realize it. And when we arrive at a confusion or a question in the relationship, it's only ever solved by communication. Why would we treat faith any different? There we can admit to him our misplaced trust, our need for clarity, honesty about what happened in the relationship. There we can reflect on how God has already shown his promises, and we can take stock in what God has affirmed before. But in all those cases, the disciples were never left alone to process their doubt. Jesus remained present. We're not alone. We're not alone in dealing with our doubt. And Jesus' mercy is readily available.